morning. Uh, turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 13. We're going to be looking at uh, the last uh, the last section in Mark chapter 13, uh, verses 24 through 37. And we'll close out Mark chapter 13 today. <coughs> Let's pray. Father, uh, we're grateful for uh, this time, this opportunity to open your word. We pray your spirit might first of all be among us and that uh, your spirit might empower, that it might, uh, that he might uh, work in our hearts to, uh, to change us uh, from the inside out. And we just pray, Father, that uh, you would be in our midst today. We ask of it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Mark chapter 13, verses uh, 24 through 37. But in those days, so he's just said in verse 23, uh, but take heed, behold, I have told you everything in advance. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven <coughs> and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. It says the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then they will see the son of man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and put forth, puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that and your translation will say he is near, but it should say it is near. It could say either, but uh, read it as it is near for our purposes today. Even at the gate, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass, pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but the father alone. Take heed, keep on alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. It is like a man away on a journey, who upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Therefore, be on alert, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, whether in the evening, at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning in case he should come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. Now, we can't get into all of this today. Uh, it is a, quite a lengthy section, but I want, to, um, I want to pick up on a few things from last week and then, and then move into, uh, into this current section. Uh, in discussing last week the importance of the temple for, say, the first century Jew, I mentioned that there was uh, and is a connection between what we know of as the kingdom of God, which is the main theme of this book, the book of Mark, and the temple. Often the idea of the kingdom of God is a, a vague notion of God's authority over his people. And it is that, but there's more to it. It is the, the active role of God with his people. Thus, the temple which signifies God coming to dwell with man, is an essential part of the kingdom of God. 
The connection, I said last week, between the rule of God, his kingdom, and the temple were these three things. Creation was and is intended to be God's temple. When he made it in the beginning, he made the heavens and the earth, he created it for himself to dwell in. And this connection between the creation of the world and God's continuing commitment to dwell among his people point to the fact that God's tabernacling among his people is the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth. That is, when God comes to dwell with man, it is the same thing as saying he's setting up his kingdom. It is the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth when God comes to dwell with his people. In other words, when he comes to dwell, he is reigning as king over his people. We saw also last week why this is true. Because God reigns from his temple. There's a throne in the temple, and the throne is the place from which God himself reigns. Secondly, the temple is also a place where heaven and earth are joined as one. It reflects a miniature world, a cosmos. It is that place not simply where God rules his people, but where he dwells among them. Thirdly, the kingdom of God's manifestation would constitute the establishment of God's final temple. That is, when the kingdom of God would come, finally and fully in the Messiah, that would mean that God had built his final temple. Kingdom and temple are inextricably bound together in the Bible and also in the minds of the people of the first century. Then for Jesus to come and make such prophetic judgments against the temple, the place from which the God of the place where the God of Israel was to dwell, was to announce an event of such proportions that language itself would break down. Their world, not the world, but their world, was coming to an end. I noted, however, uh, last week and the week before that though their world was coming to an end, Jesus was also announcing that there was a new world which was being formed. The new creation, the kingdom of God, the new temple was being born. For he said in verse eight, for these are the beginnings of birth pangs. And it was happening through the cataclysmic judgment of Jerusalem and the present temple, which was the symbolic center of Jerusalem. Now, I want to back up for just a moment to the beginning of our gospel, of the gospel of Mark. Mark introduced his gospel by quoting from Malachi 3.1. We haven't been there in a while, but remember from the beginning of the gospel, he quoted from Malachi 3.1 in Isaiah 40, verse 3. The quote in Malachi 3.1 says, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. Mark chapter 1, verse 2. As I've mentioned previously, when a writer quotes something from the scriptures, he intends it not only to provide a, not to provide a proof text, divorced from its context, but he, he intends for us to bring the whole context with it. And as for Malachi 3, the fuller passage describes the return of the Lord to his temple following the messenger. Behold, I am going to send my messenger. This is Malachi 3, 1 through 4. 
Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek, and this is it, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. Now, how does this work within Mark and within this present context of Mark 13 with the judgment falling upon the temple? If the Lord is announcing judgment upon the temple, how can he also be returning to his temple? For this is what Mark seems to be saying at the beginning of his gospel, that the Lord is returning to his temple. It is to say that in an unexpected way, the Lord is returning to his temple, but not that temple. He's building a new temple, the eschatological temple, spoken of in Daniel 2, Isaiah 2, Zechariah 14, the end, of it, the end of Ezekiel. And by opening the book this way, we should have expected that he would show us how he was returning to his temple. And he is. This is the explanation of it. Through the cataclysm of judgment on the corrupt temple and its leader, leaders, he's bringing it about. And the sign, as we saw last week, that the end is coming about, which will give birth to the new temple and the new age, is the abomination of desolation. When you see it, he says, flee. The end of the old has arrived, and it's not going to be pretty. The city has fallen under judgment, just like it says in Malachi, just like it says in Zechariah, just like it says in Isaiah. How bad will it be? So bad the world has never seen anything like it. Now the question is often in our minds, was it really that bad? Was the war on Jerusalem really that bad? In AD 69, in the run-up to the fall of Jerusalem, there were four emperors in succession who took the throne, Nero, Otho, Vitellius, and Vespasian. The year of the four emperors, it's called. One of the most bloody years of the Roman Empire. Vespasian became emperor during the siege of Jerusalem, and his adopted son Titus, as commander, besieged it with their allies. It was a bloody time with all three prior emperors either killing themselves, Nero, or being killed by a, a rival fact, uh, faction. Josephus tells us a lot about the event itself in Jerusalem. Jews who left the city to desert to the Romans during the siege, he calls the deserters. He says this about them. Because of the famine that had been inflicted upon them, having been walled in for months without adequate food and water, these began deserting. When the Jews would desert to the Romans, and apparently also the Syrians and the Arabians who were fighting on behalf of the Romans, the, deserter, the deserters would swallow pieces of gold to get them out of the city. 
for there was a great quantity of gold in the city, insomuch that the market price of gold among the Romans began to fall from the amount coming out in the stomachs of the deserters. Josephus says that when the fame of it, the pilfering of gold, filled the various camps, that the deserters came to them full of gold. So the multitude of the Arabians and the Syrians cut up those who came as supplicants and searched their bellies. Nor does it seem to me, he says, Josephus says, that any misery befell the Jews that was more terrible than this, since in one night's time about 2,000 of these deserters were dissected. After being forbidden to do such by their commanders, some ventured upon secretly against the deserters, and these barbarians would go out still and meet those who ran away before any saw them. And looking about them to see that no Roman saw them, they dissected them and pulled this polluted money out of their bowels, which money was still found in a few of them, while yet a great many others were killed by the bare hope, on the bare hope that there was, uh, that there was of thus getting some gold which miserable treatment many made that were deserting, uh, they decided to return back into the city. Josephus further recounts, a man, a, a man named Manaeus, the son of Lazarus, came running to Emperor Titus at this very time and told him that there had been carried out through that one gate which was entrusted to his care no fewer than 115,880 dead bodies in the interval between May 1st and July 20th two and a half months. And again, after this, after this man, there ran another away to Titus, uh, there ran away to Titus many of the eminent citizens and told him the entire number of the poor that were dead and that no fewer than 600,000 were thrown out of the gates, though still the number of the rest could not be found out. Now this is not over years, but over months. The entire amount of, of men that were killed in the Civil War were killed in a matter of months. And they told him further that when there were no they were no longer able to carry out the dead bodies of the poor, they laid their corpses on heaps in very large houses and shut them up therein. And also, it was not possible to gather herbs by reason that the city was walled about, so persons were driven to that terrible distress as to search the common sewers and old dung hills of cattle and to eat the dung which they got there. And what they of old could not endure so much as to see, they now used for food. There's much more. There's much more. Uh, the Wars of the Jews by Josephus explains this to a, to a great extent. Now, if someone were to describe this, such a fiery judgment, and this is the way that it's depicted within, within the Gospels, if you were to describe this, how would you describe it without telling the story that, that he gave us, that Josephus gives? If you were describing in prophetic vision, how might you describe it? This is what I think is being described in 13, 24 and following. In those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be fallen, falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Remember last week and the week before I mentioned to you that the use of apocalyptic language in this section has m led many to misunderstand it. In apocalyptic language, the sun being darkened, the moon not giving its light, the stars falling from heaven, and the powers of the heavens being shaken is a way to describe political and geographical upheaval. 
and most importantly, investing these events with theological significance. Apocalyptic language is a way of describing political and geographical upheaval and investing these events with theological significance. It is to say that the great powers of the earth were being overthrown and shifted around. It was a shifting, we might say, of the tectonic plates, of an earth-shattering event. We use this language often to describe things that actually don't shake the earth. These are some of the ways that we speak. And we can understand this language if we understand the text that brought forth this language. I often use the illustration of the song Bye-bye, uh, Miss American Pie, to illustrate what I'm talking about. Many of you, most of you, probably all of you know it. Bye-bye, Miss American Pie, drove my Chevy to the levee, and so forth. You'll probably be singing it after you leave today. <laughs> uh, it's so catchy, right? So, but the words sound great, and they are very catchy. And for years, I, I sang this song, but I had no idea what, what, what it was referring to. What, is, what in the world is, is this song referring to? It's very catchy. But behind the song stands the Vietnam War. And the language that you hear, the metaphors that they use, the analogies and the allusions are referencing in a way only that a song can the events and the tragedies of war, specifically the Vietnam War. It's actually a very subversive song, but only those who know what it's talking about get the fact that it's subversive. Uh, but once you understand it, the language of the song brings out the meaning of the events. Isaiah 13, in our current text, stands behind the language. The language of the stars falling and the sun and moon not giving their light is the language used to describe the day of the Lord, God's judgment on Babylon in particular. The language of stars falling the sun and moon not giving their light is the language used to describe the day of the Lord, the, uh, God's judgment on Babylon. How else would you describe such an event but by describing the undoing of creation? And this is what is being described. Isaiah 13, verse 9 through 16. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a, des a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. Here's the interpretation. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. And like a hunted gazelle or like sheep that none, uh, with none to gather them, each will turn to his own people and each will flee to his own land. Whoever is found will be thrust through and whoever is caught will, is caught will, will fall by the sword. Their infants will be dashed into pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be plundered and their wives ravished. What is being described here? Judgment, yes, but judgment upon whom? In the book of Isaiah, it is judgment falling upon Babylon. And the astounding thing here 
is that Jesus is using that language to describe the fall of Jerusalem. God is overthrowing Jerusalem, he says, that seed of rebellion that persecutes and kills the prophets sent to her, like he overthrew Babylon and Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 19 of that same passage. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans, like, will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. Why is this important for Jesus, for the gospel writers, who all three seem to say that this event is central to the kingdom message of Jesus? Why does it matter that, Jer that Jerusalem will be overthrown like Babylon, like Sodom and Gomorrah? I've already discussed its importance from the angle of God's purposes for creation, that is, that he might build a new temple. And I do think that this is the principal purpose of, of including it here. But from the human perspective, consider, in the scriptural world and in Jerusalem itself, uh, Jerusalem was the place where the creator God would come to dwell. And even if it seemed he had not returned to his temple, as Malachi indicated, after he left it in 586 B.C., there were still the promises of God that the people clung to. These promises that he would inhabit the temple again by returning to fill it again with his presence and glory. But when that temple, which was so central in the minds of the first century Jewish people, is utterly destroyed, there's no describing, there's no analogy to the destruction of hope that would occur following that. And frankly, I don't understand how they managed to move on. I don't understand how those who did not have Jesus' words and the perspective to understand what God was doing were ever, ever able to rebuild their lives. Within Judaism, what we now know of as rabbinic Judaism rose out of the dust of AD 70, but it is a templeless Jerusalem. And we can imagine that one might never fully recover from such loss, and they have not. Without a temple, Judaism lives in exile, not simply in terms of land, but in terms of presence, in terms of God's presence. As for Jesus' disciples being told to flee what had been the home of them and their ancestors for hundreds of years, close to a thousand years, and the temple in which they were still boasting, this cannot be taken lightly. The only comfort for them would be the fulfillment of the greater promises of God that God would now br bring about that temple not made with hands. And that they themselves would be instrumental in taking this message to the whole world. In the last section of this chapter, he turns to two last concerns. The meaning of it all, I've been trying to tell you the meaning of it all the whole time, but, but he's going to tell us the meaning of it all. And once again, he's going to use apocalyptic terminology. Verses 24, and then I'll skip over 25, go to 26. Uh, 24 says, in those days after that tribulation, verse 26, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send forth his angels and gather his elect from the four winds. And this could read messengers. I think it should send out his messengers and gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the, the earth to the end of the heavens. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. 
So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that it is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. This section, and in particular, verses 26 and 27, they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory, have, have been the key passage that led to an understanding of this passage as referring to the end of time or the end of the world, which is said to come about at the return of Christ um, being described here. And I used to think this way as well, but uh, the language doesn't quite work, especially verse 30. It clearly stands in the way of such an interpretation. This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, this language, among many theologians, has been tortured to death, but it means what it says. But what of the language of verses 26 and 27 about the, the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory? Doesn't this require that we view this as the second coming? Again, like with, like with Malachi 3, we should keep in mind that when the gospel writers allude to scripture, they intend for us to bring the whole context with it. Here, Daniel 7, which I will summarize, is not only evoked, but Mark and Jesus, who are telling us this, are telling us that this is being fulfilled in that generation. That the events of the book of Daniel, uh, that the book of Daniel is describing, reaches its climax in the completion of the tribulation of that time. And it will happen, he says, within this generation. Keeping in mind that Daniel 6 was the story about the suffering of Daniel in the lion's den and his subsequent vindication by God and the proclamation to all the nations that Daniel's God is the living God, Daniel 7 then describes a night vision in which there are four beasts coming up out of the sea, the last of which has ten horns. Then another horn pulls out three horns by the roots. That horn, that little horn, has the eyes of a man. Then thrones are set up, and the Ancient of Days takes his seat on his throne chariot. It has wheels, and they're flaming. The court sat, and the books were opened. A beast is slain, and the rest of the beasts have their dominion taken away, but were allowed to live for a little while. Then our important verse in 713. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. Pay, pay attention to this next, this next section. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one which shall, which shall not be destroyed. Perhaps you can see where I'm going with this, but there are two questions that we must ask. One, in what direction is the one like the Son of Man going? Where is he going in this passage? Verse 13, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. He's not coming to earth. He's going to the Father. What is he doing? He's receiving the kingdom. That's where he's going. What is this describing? 
What is this describing in our current passage? Listen to the interpretation given in the text. Verse 16, chapter 7 of Daniel, verse 16. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all of this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. These four great beasts are the four kings who shall arise out of the earth. You hear what he's doing? The language is apocalyptic language that is investing, investing current events with theological significance. He told me, these four great beasts are symbols of four great kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. He is receiving the kingdom on behalf of God's people who are also receiving the kingdom. As we have seen in Mark up to this point, he intends for us to see that Jesus is, an actu is actually inaugurating the kingdom of God by what he accomplished via his death and resurrection. His ascension to the Father, he says this to Caiaphas at the end. He says, you're going to see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. What does he mean by that? Why do they rend their clothes? Right? Because they understand the passage. They understand that he is claiming to bring in the kingdom of God. That's what they, th that's what they understand, and he's, he is claiming that. In chapter 13, it describes the means by which the present age begins to end and the sign by which, even after he ascended to the Father, he signals to his followers to flee from the coming destruction. He says, concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. This destruction of Jerusalem and her temple will be the sign that all of these things have come to pass. And Jesus' words, referred to here in the, uh, at the end of Mark 13, he says, will not pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And his words in these events <coughs> are the foundation of the church's hope and confidence that the new day has dawned in Christ our, <coughs> excuse me, Christ our Lord. And on the basis of this foundation, that rock which the builders rejected, he is building the new temple, the church, the body, that kingdom which will cover the earth. The means by which the glory of God, that glory of God that filled, uh, that was to fill uh, the whole earth, is now filling the whole earth by the conquering Christ and his church. Through the blood of the Messiah, through tribulation, through suffering, we, as God's people, in the kingdom of God, are to go forth conquering, subduing kingdoms. Because all authority, as we see at the end of every gospel, all authority, Jesus says, has been given to me in heaven and earth. Therefore, go make disciples. The authority that he gains by his suffering, by his resurrection, by his ascension to the Father is the authority by which you and I go forth with the gospel message. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to the Son of Man, our Lord Jesus, the Messiah. Therefore, go forth. That seems to me to be the message of Mark 13, that in this description of the fall of Jerusalem, we also see 
that it will become and be the vindication of Jesus, the Son of Man, the Messiah of Israel. And his words, his words will never pass away. They can take them to the bank. They can count on them as they go forth between that time that Jesus ascends to the Father and, and the temple is destroyed. What, can they do? what are they doing? We can see even within the book of Acts that they're still going to the temple. They're going back and forth to the temple. But they know, as the early church, Luke knows. Luke is writing the book of Acts. Luke knows this prophecy. He knows that it's coming. And for the disciples, who are still there within the vicinity of Jerusalem, they are constantly looking for this. And they know that they can, they can preach with confidence the gospel of the kingdom because the temple is ultimately going to be destroyed. And God is then, then building his new temple. As I mentioned from, uh, from Peter last week, Peter says, God is building his temple, and you are stones, you're living stones, you're being built up into a temple of God. This is what Jesus meant to proclaim in Mark 13 and in the parallel passages. And it's on this basis that you and I can go forth and make disciples. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Jared. We prepare to take the Lord's Supper. Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 